Hello, and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Joey. Usually in Affable Chat, we dive as deep as we can into a movie, and today is not an exception. Today, I have a very special guest, maybe the only person at her screenings who didn't just go for Glenn Howerton, B. Say hello, B. Hi, everyone. B is here. She's brought a very special movie, a movie close to her heart. Uh, that movie is Blackberry. Yeah, what can I do for you? Okay, picture a cell phone and an email machine all in one thing. There is a free wireless internet signal all across North America, and nobody has figured out how to use it. It's like the Force. Sorry, have you seen Star Wars? No. This is a comedic corporate tech drama biopic directed by Matt Johnson. The cast includes Matt Johnson, Hiccup, Dennis Reynolds, the Dread Pirate Wesley, Pro-ZD, Lieutenant Gene Razchek, Henry Crane, and TV's Saul Rubinek. Uh, B, how did you watch Blackberry? Um, I watched it three times in the theater, which is a very normal amount. I did not spend a lot of money on tickets and slightly regret it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds perfectly normal. I uh, saw it the um, inferior one time at an Alamo draft house in the middle of the afternoon. Um, so... Yeah, in the middle of the week, which was great. Okay, um, before we talk about this movie in depth, we're going to recap the events in our synopsis. Mike Lazaridis and his best friend Douglas Freegan are co-founders of Research in Motion, or RIM. Currently, it is 1996, and they are pitching the next big thing. The only problem is the person they're pitching to, Jim Balsillie, isn't even listening. He's preparing for a bigger, more important meeting and ignores Mike and Doug's idea for a new device, something they call the Pocket Link. Mike and Doug return home to tell their collection of nerds, that is ostensibly their employees, that the pitch did not go well. The nerds are disappointed, but they really just want to watch movies and play video games, so it's all good. The next day, Mike gets a call from Jim Balsley. He has been fired from his firm and wants to be CEO of RIM. Doug is completely against it, but Mike considers the offer carefully. When he finds out his $16 million deal with U.S. Robotics has fallen through, he takes Jim's offer. For $125,000, Jim gets 33% of RIM and becomes co-CEO with Mike. Jim gets Mike a meeting with Bell Atlantic, but Mike doesn't have a working prototype yet. He, Doug, and the swarm of nerds stay up all night building a device no one has ever seen before. The next day, Mike and Jim go to New York City. On the way, the two co-CEOs agree never to lie to each other. The pitch goes well. Mike has solved a major technical problem that has kept Bell Atlantic from building their own device. They decide to call it the BlackBerry. We jump ahead to 2003. The BlackBerry has propelled Rim from a rickety, nerd-infested startup into a real company with a building and a parking lot. Mike has just found a way to make texting free. Things are going well. But then Carl Yankowski, the CEO of Palm Pilot, arrives to announce he is planning a hostile takeover of RIM. Jim buys his company a few months, hoping to boost his stock high enough to price out Yankowski. But there is a problem. The network can only handle 500,000 Blackberries at a time. Any more, and service problems become glaringly apparent. Jim shops around at Microsoft, Google, Nintendo, and others, poaching top talent with some maybe legal stock options. These new, fresh, better nerds help Mike solve his bandwidth problem by reprogramming the cell towers to make them more efficient. 
the raw nerd energy that Doug pioneers is starting to grate against Mike. So he has the new COO, Charles Purdy, whip the nerds into actually working. Rim is able to avoid the takeover, and the BlackBerry is propelled into the future. Now it is 2007. Mike has gone full corporate, and the BlackBerry has stalled in terms of innovation. That becomes abundantly clear when Steve Jobs gives his keynote announcing the iPhone. The iPhone breaks Mike. When he tries to pitch to his longtime partners at Verizon, they are disappointed with his new trackpad. Mike promises an iPhone killer even though he has nothing up his sleeve. While Mike makes a fool of himself, Jim is absent. He and his nervous, phone-holding twink assistant are jetting around the U.S. and Canada. Jim is interested in buying the Pittsburgh Penguins and is letting that distract him from work. Unfortunately for Jim, the other team owners vote to block the sale to him. This makes Jim pissed. Meanwhile, the SEC is breathing down Rim's neck. It turns out those maybe legal stock options were totally not legal. Mike sells out his co-CEO in order to save himself. One year later, the new touchscreen Blackberries arrive from China, but they aren't up to Mike's usual standards of quality. In classic biopic style, the closing titles give a short epilogue. Jim avoids jail time. Mike leaves Rim, now Blackberry, in 2012. Doug sold his stock at the peak, becoming unbelievably rich. BlackBerry once had 45% market share. Now they have 0%. The end. There you have it. The uh, events of BlackBerry um, synthesized for your enjoyment. Now we will dive into our pros and cons uh, for this movie. B, what did you like about BlackBerry? I mean, it's going to be easier to go with what I didn't like later <laughs> to narrow it down. But um, I think the the standout things for me were, um, I guess, to keep it short, the performances. Um, as we'll explore later, I wasn't exactly coming into this movie for like performance star power or incredible casting. I have a different connection to the movie um, and it's production and it's crew and nothing personal I'm just a big fan um so um I definitely felt like the performances kind of blew me away um to an extent I wasn't expecting especially Jay Baruchel I think largely the marketing was kind of focused on Glenn Howerton and his you know like Dennis Reynolds golden god screaming thing um but Jay Baruchel was really nuanced, had some really interesting choices that he made with his performance that really drew me in and were um, a highlight for me. Um, I'll also say, you know, pretty much everything else, the score, the cinematography, the editing, all of it's good technically, but I think a special aspect of it is that as someone who's coming in as a fan of the director, Matt Johnson, um, I felt this was a really solid blend of his established style from his earlier sort of more niche indie works um, to like a first step into the mainstream in a sense. I felt like it was a really good blend of, you know, moving up but not selling out in a sense. Um, and then my last little bit that might be completely rebutted, I have no idea, um, for me, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was just really cool to see Matt Johnson sort of holding his own against the other actors. Um, again, the other like sort of well-known stars, you could say. Um, for me, it's hard to be objective because I'm a big fan of his work and his acting choices in general. Um, but I felt like 
as as much as I could be objective, he didn't feel like he stuck out like a sore thumb in the acting sense. I didn't think that he was like leagues below everyone else or acting in like a completely different style. I felt that he blended in pretty well. Um, I can say some negative stuff about his work and his choices if you press me, but um, I, <laughs> it's I, um, gonna be it's gonna be hard pressed. I yeah, so definitely not um, and objective or potentially even reasonable take but I think it was nice to see him sort of I guess out there with some of the bigger fish definitely no I, I definitely understand that um for me uh this movie was funny I think it was brimming with style and had a very unique direction there's lots of little scenes that stood out to me as like very interesting uh directional choices um I think it's a strange but very important story that really helped shape our current reality, something that I had really no idea even was the truth until I watched this movie. I really liked the montages. I thought they were um, interesting, dynamic, fun. Um, and I think uh, Glenn Howerton is really good at yelling at things and breaking things. Um, uh, he's quickly moved up my list in terms of favorite guys I like to see yelling. Um, you know, uh, Michael uh, Sharon or Michael Shannon is still like probably at the top of that list. But if I'm going to cast a movie and I need a guy who yells and breaks things, I think Glenn Howerton is going to be well considered at this point. Um, and also, this movie's weird. <laughs> and so I, I, I really like that bit about it. But, B, you've already mentioned, you know, this movie is not perfect. Uh, what, what did you not like about it? Yeah. So, I mean, in my heart, I gave it five stars on Letterboxd. But, you know, ethically, <laughs> there were some things that on rewatches, I was kind of like, I'm not 100% sure. Because, of course, the first watch, I was just like, oh, my God, it's a new Matt Johnson movie. Um, but um, on rewatch, and this was true for both times that I rewatched it, um, I felt that the beginning kind of feels like it drags in contrast. But I'm not sure how much of that I didn't feel that way going through the first screening. So I'm not sure how much of that is actual pacing issues um, and how much is just that the ending gets sort of like fever pitch intense. So like I'm thinking about my experience with the movie prior and then I come back in and I'm like, oh, it's not quite as insane yet. It's kind of on the edge of my seat waiting for that. I will also say that I mean, not that you or anyone listening could see the biggest grin gro broke out on my face when you said that you liked the montages because I could write essays and I have written essays and like DMs with friends about the the montage as a pillar of the Matt Johnson cinematic universe. Um, it's something that he brings in a lot as an editing choice. Um, they're always pretty vital, in my opinion, to character motivation and um, you really get some insight, especially with the needle drop that he pairs with montages. In this movie, I will say it was probably my least favorite of the montages that he's done. I felt that some of the archival sequences, like the, the intro title sequence, I mean, the song, Absolute Banger, the snippets that he was showing, I mean, fun, like, you know, including lines from Hackers and stuff. And I think there was some Star Trek in there. Um, I felt that it felt somewhat out of place tonally. Um, but I think part of that is due to the slight change in subject matter. His other movies are largely about making movies in the sense of characters literally editing the montages in the universe of the movie. <laughs> um, so, wow. um, yeah, it's very, very fun. Um, and again, of course, that then adds to why the montages are significant. 
the needle drops that are chosen are chosen in universe by characters and what does that say about the characters etc doesn't have that diegetic it's, yeah it's not diegetic it's not yeah. part of the story so i was much. searching it's, for the word diegetic yeah it's, it's not, not um, a um that's interesting yeah um yeah, so, so it doesn't it doesn't have that extra layer to it. Yeah, so I think movie. the montage is just were f- it's just a montage. Exactly, and so for anyone else, it's like oh fun a montage. For me, it's like oh this is the montage. <laughs> like I I made I made a bingo card with my friends about the movie for like what we were expecting. None of us actually got bingo because I think we all were a little bit too Johnson pilled. We were a little bit too focused on his style and not the subject matter. I'm one of my bingo spaces was um, like narratively significant montage or like emotionally Mm. significant montage. And I kind of hesitated whether to check that off or not because it was like technically yes, but I don't know. Um, To wrap it up, um, my cons would be the biopic slides at the end. I understand why they're there. And they did make me burst out laughing the first time I watched the movie because it was just so like, you know, okay, yeah, this is a biopic. Like it's kind of cheesy. It's fun. It's camp. But at the same time, probably my least favorite of his endings for works that he's put out um and it did kind of draw me out a little bit um i did appreciate his self-insert becoming like ludicrously rich and just watching movies with friends though that was like that was (laughs) any doubt i had about this being thematically in line with his other work i was like okay yeah that makes sense um and then I think that if you're going into this movie looking for accuracy to the real story, if you're going in looking for a factual recap of what happened, I have a copy of the book that this is based on, um, Losing the Signal, and I haven't gotten around to digging into it, but my understanding is that there are a lot of liberties that were taken with this. I believe the... I'll have to... Don't quote me quoting him on this i have to double check um at some point but i my impression is that matt read the book and basically was like okay but where's the drama like this is interesting but there has to be more like you know interpersonal stuff and he did end up going and tracking down some ex-employees and also fictionalizing some things to make it more engaging if you're going into a Matt Johnson movie expecting objective storytelling, then um, that might not be the route to approach the work from, in my opinion. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I, it doesn't really bother me that it doesn't follow the story exactly. I think that the, I think it's interesting the choices he made, and um, yeah, you sent me this article uh, from DeFactor, which I thought is really interesting, and they mentioned in there that they the movie is based off of you know, explicitly based off of losing the signal. They say that in the credits, right? But it's actually more closely based off of like these crazy ramblings that this uh, whistleblower uh, who worked at RIM um, uh, like published talking about all the different like uh, things happening behind the scenes. And that was really like the, the inspiration for this film, not so much this official narrative. Yeah, I think the funniest thing about that is, to me is that Um, I believe where he mentions that the guy um, that he got a lot of that information from um, turned out to be like a woodworking YouTuber, which is just such a fun sort of niche (laughs) thing to point out. So like he talks about like I was like, this guy's a woodworking YouTuber. Then he looked into it and was like, yeah, he actually is Um, that same woodworking YouTuber. Basically, he put out um, a video reacting to the trailer of the movie. Yeah, it's Matthias Vondel. I think that's how you say it. Matthias Wandel Vondel. Um, I'm not sure. I believe he's from Germany originally. Basically, the video of him reacting to the trailer is like, that's not how it happened. 
yeah, that's not right. Yeah, no. And the funniest part to me is that as he's watching, he specifically pinpoints the character of Doug and he's like, he looked nothing like this. He acted nothing like this. I don't know where they made this guy up from, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it's like very funny to me that because it's very, very Matt Johnson that he just kind of like takes the loose narrative and then he kind of does whatever he wants with it. So yeah. it's very funny to me, the whiplash of that article being like, yeah, I contacted this guy and I spoke to him for hours in depth and I really took on board what he had to say. And then you watch the video and the guy's like, yeah, I don't think this they used any of the stuff that I talked to him about. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he did put out recently a video re um, recapping the movie or reviewing the movie. And I haven't taken a look at that yet. I just saw that the video exists. But based on the YouTube comments, there was talk of him possibly having an audio commentary in the works mm. for the movie when it gets a physical release, which will be very funny because I really hope it's him and Matt Johnson just sitting in a room like why did you do this? This is not what I told you. <laughs> You're insane. Why did you make it like this? Okay, so um, for me, I have a, I have a, a wide range of cons here, and hopefully, be you'll be able to enlighten me on some of these because some of these I think like are just questions. One of them is uh, Mike. I feel like Mike Lazaridis, does, his character is well established at the beginning. You're right, Jay Baruchel is a, is a fantastic actor, but I don't really understand his transition into being like a corporate douche, like him dressing the way he does and slick back hair and like trying to be like a Steve Jobs character. It's uh, it, I don't know. It was it didn't I didn't really understand that transition very well. Um, I feel like this movie is vaguely pro management and anti nerd. Um, I don't know if you got that vibe at all. I kind uh, of got the exact opposite vibe, but we can get really? into that. Yeah, and I got the same. Okay. I got the exact opposite vibe about Mike in a sense as well. So we we definitely have different approaches okay. on. I understand where you're coming from. I'll put it that way. Okay, that's I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe this is a, a hot take, but I don't think just yelling makes you a good actor. Um, as much as I appreciate someone who can yell good, uh, I don't think the ability to yell or just yelling makes you a like standout actor. I didn't think Glenn, I wasn't super impressed with Glenn Howerton's performance. I felt like he just went on there in there and was uh, eating the scenery uh, just kind of over the top. Um, and maybe that was a directorial choice, but uh, there's, I feel like there's other evidence that points to him thinking he's in a completely different movie than uh, the movie that everyone else is in. So um, I, I thought that was, I thought that was a strange a point of it and it, it's sort of um grading and it, it pulls me uh away from i think some of the more interesting parts of the movie i agree with that in the sense that my favorite like standout moments for him as an actor and as a character in this movie i mean of course him smashing the phone in the phone booth is very oh my dear gosh to me. that was great like of, <laughs> of course on a certain level like no matter what critiques you have you have to step back and be like okay yes when he yells it's very good um but i do <laughs> I think that two of my favorite sort of points for him um, are scenes where he isn't yelling, where he's much more down to earth and he's much more nuanced. Towards the end, one, um, which I think, you know, sort of the emotional peak in a sense um, for the dynamic between Mike and Jim, where they both kind of are like, okay, yeah, this is over. Um, yes. And Wait, wait, like, when he, when he, I can't remember the exact moment, but when Jim, like, he, like, steps back and he just has, like, this small smile on his face. He's like, yeah. okay. 
like he, yeah, he's he, like accepting. Yeah, it, I I really like that moment. I thought that was very interesting because I was like, why isn't he yelling? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> like, he's been yelling of, this whole movie, and now yeah, he's not yelling. When, you're when kind everything's of primed, wrong, you know. Yeah, you're kind of primed throughout the movie to for him to be explosive in reaction to things. Yeah, and so that subversion at the end was a very sort of good choice, and I think that. To an extent, maybe his overdoing and hamming up of the yelling makes that more impactful. I don't know if that's a worthy trade-off. I don't know if, you know, it's worth sort of pulling you out to then pull you back in. Um, The other smaller detail scene, I was just, I keep thinking about it. I think the only time you genuinely see him smile, not like a corporate smile, not like a, you know, schmoozing the Verizon or whatever smile, is when... Mike announces that they sort of cracked the code on how to encrypt texts and do it over data. And it's like both one of my least favorite moments and my favorite moments because there's this, he sounds like he's in a commercial. Jim goes, unlimited texting only on BlackBerry. And every (laughs) single time I was like, I know he's speaking corporate slogan speak on purpose. It kind of made me roll my eyes. But then he like breaks out into this huge grin and yeah, he's, he's like about to be celebrating even richer with than he was before. Of course he's happy about it. No, but <laughs> that that's what I'm saying though is like there's this I don't know, there was some maybe he suckered me like he suckered a lot of people into signing contracts and doing things they weren't wouldn't be okay with otherwise, but I don't know, something about that smile and the way that he genuinely is sort of happy and you know the the nerd pack is all like playing music and dancing around goofing off and he doesn't really whip them into shape right away he's kind of there and he's chilling and he's not participating but observing that sort of seems like the best dynamic the whole group has of the movie where yeah. he's like yeah yeah sort of I, I completely agree it's like, the, at that okay point they it. were they were on the rise right they weren't quite at the top yeah. yet but they were everything was going well they were they, they, both sides of the BlackBerry Corporation were working seamlessly together, right? Yeah. But like they had the nerds who are innovating and coming up with like the next big thing. Every time Jim would come to, to work, something crazy would have like would have happened, right? And on the other side, they were selling all this all these phones, and he was on the you know he was in the newspaper, he was on magazines and all this stuff. So it was it was all going really really well at that point. So it, it, I think that scene was meant to sort of symbolize this like continued innovation that BlackBerry was going through, right? It was still being, it was still the best in the, in, in class. It was still the, the one that everyone wanted. And it was, uh, um, just making itself better and better, um, uh, with, with better and better products, which is like what your sales guys dream of, you know, normally they have to sell the same crap over and over again. Um, and, and try to convince people that it's new. But when someone actually comes up with a new thing that you can implement and, and sell, I mean that's a, that's a that's a dream come true. Yeah. So that that scene again, that that smile that he gives off, and then later when he sort of again smiles, sort of sadly, like accepting that he's probably screwed for life. <laughs> that he doesn't end up being screwed, but like you know, he's he's kind of resigned to like you know federal prison or whatever it's, he's expecting. He's thinking in his head, it's so Jover right now. It he literally is. Um, <laughs> it's so Jimver right now. Um, <laughs> Okay, um, let's move into our overall section. I've written a bunch of questions for you, B, which you have so helpfully answered. Um, uh, this first one, which is the one I usually ask first, I'm going to, I'm going to preface this uh, <laughs> briefly. So 
Um, uh, I don't know when it was. It was early on when we started doing this podcast. B came to me and was like, I uh, love this director, Matt Johnson, specifically this movie called The Dirties. And I would love to talk about it on the podcast. And um, we never have. But but we but we will uh, I, I, sometime this year it will happen. Um, but then uh, BlackBerry comes out, directed by Matt Johnson, and I'm seeing it all over B's timeline on Twitter. And she, <laughs> a couple days after the movie comes out, she posts in the Apple Chat Discord like, "Respectfully, please do BlackBerry for the podcast." I'm like, "Wow, the restraint on this woman is incredible." Um, to only post a single time in our Discord when she's been obsessed with this movie for so long, yeah. So it's uh, B has uh, coined the term Johnson Head. Uh, she invited me to another Discord server where her and a bunch of uh, terminally online people talked endlessly about this movie and many other John's, uh, Matt Johnson movies. Um, to say that she's a super fan might not quite uh, uh, breach the uh, uh, the surface here. Um, so there's the movie that I watched, right, which is uh, I went to see it in the middle of the afternoon about a corporate drama. Uh, starring some notable actors. And then there is the deeper level of the Matt Johnson universe, which B is well well versed in, and in some cases writing the very fabric that is uh, that universe. So um, I'm very happy that you're here, B, to, to enlighten me on the deeper level of this movie. Uh, so when I ask you, um, why did you pick this movie or why are you, what got you into Matt Johnson in the first place, I think is probably my first question. Okay, yeah, that's a bit of a, a different question, because the reason I, I recommended this movie, on top of being a fan of his, obviously. Yeah, so I I mentioned it for the podcast because, as a fan of his work, um, I'm not going to be super pretentious and say that it's, like, inaccessible, or that you, like, you have to have a very high IQ to understand the epic highs and lows. You of, have to be a fan of Rick and Morty if yeah. you want to watch Matt Johnson. Yeah, so I'm not going to go that far, although there is also a part of me that's like, no one understands these characters the way that I do, because I thought about them for like years and years and years, for the one movie specifically. Um, but yeah, so I, I felt like this was a really, really interesting stepping stone where you're going from this guy with this cult following, because I'm not the only person who's a fan of his. I He has like a pretty big following from um, some web series comedy that he's done that then got turned into a um, Vice Canada series like on TV. Anyway, I'm a big fan of his and there isn't exactly, I won't say there's not a huge community, um, but not a huge community I've been a part of to talk about his work. So when I first watched The Dirties back in like, I want to say 2016-ish, um, it was the kind of movie that I don't want to hype it up too much, but for me personally, the time in my life I was at, the themes that I was interested in at the time in media, um, a lot of the balancing of like dark comedy and actual really, really emotionally compelling storytelling. Um, it kind of, the way I have described it is that it kind of rewrote my brain. It kind of altered my brain <laughs> chemistry to the point where I was such a big fan of this movie, um, The Dirties. But, I mean, if you look up the premise, it's a bit of a hard sell um, on some levels because without sugarcoating it, it's basically, you know, a found footage mockumentary dark comedy 
about a school shooting. So it's mm. like, when I watched it, I, I think he handled it very, very well. I have a lot of thoughts about the movie that I won't even touch because I'm just going to not talk about Blackberry at all. Um, but it's a hard sell, right? Because he has a very distinct direction style. Um, and so I kind of jumped into the deep end of the pool, like head first, like zero context on anything else he had done. I didn't come at it from a comedy guy perspective, making a more serious movie. I didn't come at it from like, oh, I watched this cell phone corporate drama movie and now I'm going back to see what his first work was. I sort of dove in head first and it was like, you know, sink or swim. You have to accept all the weird stuff going on or you're just going to bounce right off of it. Yeah. And I swam for miles and miles and miles and set up my own little island where I talked about this movie to myself and no one else in my brain and just let it marinate like ferment until I had so many thoughts about this that the second that there was a chance for his work to become more mainstream I was like look I need to get the good word out there <laughs> um yeah so do you so. think Blackberry is the most accessible of his movies i mean certainly um, is the one that has the widest release is that right yes it definitely is um so i guess for for anyone interested or listening his first so he he did um comedy stuff online a, a sketch series or really web series called nirvana the band the show which is about him and his friend um who want to be in a band and play at the rivoli which is this um venue in toronto and every episode is them trying to get to play at the Rivoli. Um, but like they're kind of like the worst band ever. So that right. was his initial stuff. And then he did The Dirties, which, as I've discussed, is um, it's definitely still it's like dark, dark comedy. <laughs> um, but it takes it very seriously. And I would say respectfully, um, especially as the movie progresses. Um, and then he did a movie called Operation Avalanche, which is about um, being a FBI or sorry, CIA agent who is faking the mood landing um, as like from the perspective of like filmmakers. So like taking actual film and like compositing objects onto the film and then re scanning it or whatever, you know, however filming works with film. I'm, yeah, I'm a zoomer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, a lot of his work really is about being a creative and about the struggles of your art or your creation consuming you um getting so absorbed in things that you kind of lose yourself lose your reason um and i mean this is kind of so getting pretentious yeah, so, about it but. so how do you think that that's interesting because that seems like it resonates with blackberry right where they create this thing that is changes the world really right it is the first smartphone uh, it was the iPhone before the iPhone. So how do you feel like that idea of like a, con a creation consuming its creator uh, works with this movie? Um, it actually kind of ties into what the issue that you had with Mike in a way. So it's it's weird because, you know, again, his previous works, as I sort of outlined, an important detail is that it's always like directed by Matt Johnson, starring Matt Johnson. He's yeah. like he makes it and then he is on screen doing it right and so even the web series and his two previous films his character is literally named matt johnson like there's no <laughs> character name like he's just matt and like his yeah. co-star for the two movies owen is just owen and like that's just 
and a lot of it is improv dialogue and sort of like your guerrilla filming where the people don't know they're in a movie that are on the street that they're interviewing or whatever. So my I think my like big takeaway when I left the theater, and I mean this with all due respect, if Matt ever somehow hears this, like, you know, <laughs> hi, huge fan. Um, but I my like biggest thing I wasn't expecting is that Matt Johnson's character is the normal one in this movie. Like he's quirky. You call him normal? Okay. He's quirky, <laughs> but he is, I would argue, one of the more well-adjusted ones. He doesn't like blow his temper. He doesn't have a public meltdown. He doesn't like sabotage his own creation. He doesn't like lose who he is, right? And so That's like true. from the beginning to the end, Doug is the fun movie night guy who just wants to chill and watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and dance around with his friends and maybe make some money while making phones and stuff. But like, you know, if he's able to go in every day and just like play World of Warcraft with his friends and then go home and he still got paid for it, like he's good with that. And that's very, very different in my opinion from the way that he, his characters in previous works sort of become so obsessed with what they're creating or are already so obsessed with what they're creating that they kind of lose a sense of morality or um, lose sort of a sense of like logistics or what's or who they are in the first place or why they even started doing the thing in the first place. So because that's sort of what Mike goes through. I mean, what you're saying here, right, is like he starts off as this kind of earnest person who believes in quality above almost anything else. Right. Um, He has this vision of what a perfect device would be. And um, he ends up creating it. And then when something better comes along, he's unable to adjust to that. Right. And he starts compromising on everything that he wanted in the first place. But that but that um, I mean, that process starts off even earlier, you might say, because he uh, he gets uh, Charles Purdy to go in there and whip the nerds into shape, right? Much to uh, Doug's disappointment. I would um, say so, that's sort of the beginning of his transformation in some So why do, you, why do you think he... See, for me, Mike never seemed like one of the other nerds. He was always by himself while everyone else was playing around, right? He was the one making the calls. He was the one pioneering this stuff, going to the meetings. Um, you know, uh, he had the technical know-how. He built. He basically built that first prototype, at least according to the movie, by himself, right? Uh, him and Doug. Doug were up was there, there all, all night. night. Doug was there yes, all night. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. But all the other nerds went home, and it wasn't clear how much Doug contributed. It was it, it a lot of it was focused on Mike and his like vision and um, you know his dedication to it, um, and, and he never seemed like he was. He never seemed uh, totally annoyed with the other guys, but he was never really like kind of brought into it right he was always working while they were playing um so do you really do you feel like he was he really transitioned into something else at that at that point in the movie when he decides to uh the, to hire the or to start using the um chief operating officer or is he uh, you know is he becoming more true to himself or is he becoming something else i think that the the thing that i i don't want to 
put this the wrong way because I don't think that Jim is some big evil bad guy that comes in and like ruins everything and intentionally causes problems or whatever that he's like exclusively a bad influence. I think that it's important to have people who know how to negotiate and know how to um, kind of be a little bit cutthroat in any sort of industry especially i is jim even a good businessman here's my no, hot take no he's not but... he doesn't have he doesn't he does not sell the phone right it's mike yeah. who sells the phone mike comes in with the phone and says i've solved your technical problem they're in and bell south or bell atlantic is like oh great uh this is good. this is very good for us and then um later on right uh, uh jim's like we'll sell more phones right which is part of the solution but it's mike's uh you know a handling of another technical problem that ends up pushing them into uh into the future right um and yeah so i i think that so that's why i'm saying i don't think it's like all jim's fault or whatever that mike ends up the way he is i think that it's shown um at certain instances that Mike just sort of has a tendency to default to how other people want to handle things, right? Like, from Mm. the beginning of the movie, like, one of my favorite, absolute favorite things is Doug being like, well, Mike's in charge and Mike says no. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, um, it's so, like, they just have this dynamic where Mike is sort of, like, the one figuring things out, but he needs someone else to say it for him. Um, He doesn't really stand up he he's at a point where he's comfortable with things you know being I wouldn't say comfortable he does seem pretty irritated at times but he's kind of defaulted to things being more lackadaisical more go with the flow more you know we've got this deal and it'll work itself out and whatever he's kind of defaulting to Doug and at a point once he meets Jim and realizes that Jim is right about some things about the deal not going through with um with the u.s robotics about um you know his his employees later on not really pulling their weight in some instances about um you know doug being a goof and sort of like having other things he'd rather do i think that it's just a a matter of mike is sort of a reflection in some instances of the people that he works with and of the people that he um that that he respects because there is early on in the the movie night scene where they're watching the Indiana Jones movie and you know Doug's sitting there and he's quoting along loudly and joking he turns back to Mike and says you're missing your favorite movie right which to me signals like i mean maybe it's just like you know Doug's like i love this movie everyone loves this movie but to me it signals that it's the failure at that initial pitch that spurs Mike to be like okay I need to think of a new name because this cool business guy says we don't have a good name and so I get the sense that maybe mm, off screen off screen or prior they were because I mean they're best friends he says to uh, sorry I keep saying he there's like nobody but guys in this movie <laughs> but um, only men in this yeah. movie <laughs> Mike says to Jim, you know, can Doug come along for this pitch? He's my best friend. That's the right. argument he comes to is like, you know, he worked hard on this and he's not, my best yeah, friend. Not, not that he's a, a co-founder, not that he yeah. like made important strides toward the 
vision or development of this product he's he's the best friend yeah and then and then later on in that same sort of sequence when they're in the car and one of the more pivotal thematically important scenes in my opinion is the let's promise let's agree to never lie to each other about anything yes that's that same sort of okay we're gonna be friends we're gonna work together like i feel like mike is i don't want to say naive but he kind of he kind of is under the assumption that people are, they're they're doing what they say they're doing. They're working at BlackBerry because they're working on the best phone in the world. It's not because of X, Y, or Z. And they're yeah. um, sort of being, they're, they're out there and they're selling phones and they're being cutthroat because that's what they hired this guy to do. And so I think that Mike's slow transformation into a pseudo Jim towards the end is almost like, you know, Jim comes in restructures the whole company like okay we're going to be doing this this and this and then he screws off to go buy a hockey team and mike's like well every this is how we were doing things that must be how we do things so i'm going to step up and be like okay you do this this and this and to me i i just i don't know exactly what it says or if it's a logical explanation but i just found that really compelling sort of mike taking specific phrases that Jim says, like later on, you know, Jim says, why aren't we worried about Apple? Mike says, because they're idiots. That's right. And that's, and that's the, what the, Jim said when he asked him why he was fired. He yeah. said, because they're idiots. Yeah. That's right. And so, and then during sort of the, the breakdown scene where he invents a phone on the spot, yeah, um, he starts saying, you know, like, screen keyboard phone screen keyboard phone are you getting it the same exact cadence and structure of the um phone um music email or whatever the pitch was for the iphone that he saw like two days before so he's just very i think it's shown narratively that he is the type of person who picks up on what other people are doing and sort of takes it on and so he's almost maybe in a sense too valuable because he does take on these quote unquote bad influences of like, okay, yes, I guess we'll go to China for the production because you keep saying it and it's the only way this is going to work. And okay, I guess we're going to tell the nerds to work harder because Jim says, hey, you're falling behind. You need to get these guys in shape. I hired this guy to do that. Mike's like, no, Doug's my friend. And then he steps back and sees, yeah, they're setting up movie night when this apocalyptic thing is about to happen. Right. And he's like, you know what? Yeah, Jim's right. Okay, party's over. He's just kind of, I don't know. I've I found him very compelling in the sense that you can see him still have that naivety, still be like, well, they're working here because it's the best phone ever. Doug's my friend. He works here. Like, you know, it's, but as it goes along, he's sort of, becomes corporatized which in a sense is why i feel that it's not pro-corporate anti-nerd it's this guy loses himself in the corporate world and the company implodes because i mean there's so many factors as to why blackberry fails in this movie specifically and then not even comparing to real life but i think a large element is that the dynamic that's let that let's agree not to lie to each other, let's work together, let's be honest, let's, um, you know, not contribute to the hiss, let's not produce in China, let's produce ourselves, let's not make up a BS prototype and just pretend it does something when it doesn't, 
like all of these things that he goes back on or compromises on or loses because he's sort of thrust into the, into this position where he has to because Jim sets that precedent and then leaves to go buy the penguins and Mike doesn't even know he's right. buying the penguins he's just like Jim's not coming into work I guess and he's just trying to pick up and so I don't know that that was no, pretty no, no, un- no, no, unstructured but that's no no you're making yeah. a lot of sense you're make, I, the reason why I'm not talking is that you're making me think very hard about this um I, I think you're right. I think that it, it, Mike is very he's very malleable, right? He's he's he sees other people acting and he wants to act like them, and so he takes on the characteristics of other characters, um, and it ends up transforming him into something else. I'm just wondering what that has to do with, like the BlackBerry, right? Does is that a is there is there another mirror to that in this story about, uh, or 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 is that um, is that uh, Matt Johnson's diagnosis for why the BlackBerry failed? Is because I don't, Mike I don't, lost his way. I don't know that it's even his diagnosis. I think it's that he read about BlackBerry collapsing and he was like, this is a Canadian story. Um, I'm Canadian. I want to make Canadian stories. Yes. Um, which is something he's been very vocal about. Um, and then sort of being like, you know, well, why did this happen? There has to be interpersonal stuff here because why else would something like this fall apart? It can't sure. possibly be because of capitalism. It has to be something else, right? It has to be <laughs> emotional. Um, and so he he went digging for a story and he either found or potentially made a story that he could connect to and emotionally reflect on and use to tell a story of quote unquote selling out and so so do you think that matt johnson is sees himself in mike lazaridis or the mike lazaridis at least that's on screen i think that of the three leads that we have there is one pretty direct matt johnson self-insert and it's not the character that matt plays <laughs> um well Interesting. It, it is in some senses because the movie quoting and stuff like it i feel like doug Doug and Mike are almost two halves of a whole to the way that he portrays himself, where Doug is the sort of lackadaisical, you know, carefree, like, you know, passionate, but also there to have fun and like cares about people and wants to do things um, in a way that like very anti-crunch, very like, let's all work together. Let's all have fun. What's the point in doing this if it's not fun, if it's not appealing to everyone? If not, I'm not doing it for myself and my friends then who am i doing it for sort of thing whereas mike is the side in some senses where you know when you get more resources and you get more um opportunities or even when you get more invested in what you're making there's a part of you that's like well i have to see this through the whole way it has to be perfect i can't you know good enough is the enemy of humanity is like such a resonant line for me, and I think for Mike as a character, it's very, it's very, um, it's very central. It's a very core concept. Um, so I don't want to be like, I don't know. I feel like I'm getting very like parasocial and speculative about like this is exactly why Matt Johnson would do this. It's all secretly about him. But like, I don't know. I think coming. I don't from think his, that. I don't think that's off base at all. B. Yeah. I do think that because I think the story is so strange. I think that the. Um, uh, I think you're right that all three 
of our main characters, right? Doug, Mike, and Jim all represent different aspects of the creative process, which is something that you've just you know told me about. That's something that um, Matt Johnson is uh, very passionate about exploring on screen, right? In uh, you have Doug, who's like the I don't, there's the id, the ego, and the super ego, and I can never remember which one's which. But I don't remember Doug. either. But I'm on board. I I know what <laughs> the, you're saying. Yeah. Doug is like the create. He's like the you know pure right brain, right creative, uh, free, um, you know very unstructured. Then we've got Jim on the other side, who's like very left brain, right. Everything's about structure. Everything has to fall into a specific hierarchy. Um, you do blank to get blank, right? It's all very logical. And And justify the means, yeah. Right, that too. Mike is on the other side, yeah, dispassionate, unempathetic. Mike is in the middle, uh, sort of bouncing or or moving from Doug's side to Jim's side, right? And I think, um, I think Jim's like attitude and like his, you know, kind of corralling the nerds definitely shows, um, like the potential that blackberry has as a company to innovate and to create new things whereas doug is kind of helming this like um more creative process that's unclear what its value is in this movie right and that's why i keep thinking about this as a um pro corporate pro management anti-nerd movie is because the only time blackberry succeeds is when they actually get all the nerds in line and start getting to do stuff you know but the Um, but the time that they succeed and they're succeeding with no asterisks no impending doom right is when they're working on the same level when they're both they're equally you know celebrating and playing music and unlimited free texting only on blackberry when they're like when because it's after that that then jim starts to do the shady stuff with the stocks and the sec sort of perks their ears up that's after this sort of equilibrium period where they have the montage with oprah giving people blackberries and stuff like there is this period that is sort of skipped over because it's uneventful in the sense that everything's working the way it should be when everything's in equilibrium or somewhat equilibrium and you know mike's sort of not in charge in charge jim's sort of in charge but mike is like taking influence from the left and the right of his brain of his creation and sort of funneling it into okay yes we're a real company and we have like a real building and stuff but we still have movie nights and yes we're going to um you know bring in these new factors and or these new people that we're going to employ and we're going to pursue these further um you know advancements in technology but we have a limit technically and we're not going to crunch our workers or replace them sure and kick these people out who have like families just right, to right, right. make more phones so okay uh, so yeah. okay hold on um so let's move back to the perfectionism aspect of this right? yes because mike is mike states this right so uh jim says he's got a meeting with bell atlantic uh and he says we need to make a prototype and you need to make it today and uh mike refuses saying that it's going to take like a year because he wants it to be perfect and jim says uh mike haven't you ever heard the phrase the perfect is the enemy of the good and mike says good enough is the enemy of humanity which is god what a pretentious line it's <laughs> but so corny it's good like, it's yeah. really good i never heard that before and it, it definitely like 
made me like sit back in my seat a little bit. Um, but uh, but thinking more on it, it's like, come on, man. Um, but what's interesting about this is that he's saying this when he is on the Doug side of the spectrum, right? Exactly. He's saying yeah. this when he's on the creative like kind of carefree side of it he believes this and then in the end he compromises on this right and and goes for something that's less perfect or less than up to uh, less than his usual standards of quality and it's something he's very very disappointed in and uh, it's hinted that this is like the reason he leaves or like the reason why he feels like he's failed or why blackberry's failed in general so why do you feel like this perfectionism side is on the right side of the brain instead of the left side of the brain I think because perfectionism is never about objectivity. Like, you know, if you're Ooh, a, perf- a good answer if, for you. <laughs> if you're a perfectionist, you can do something, you can like write an essay and get a hundred on it and be like, Yeah, I did a hundred, but I got a hundred, but I phoned it in. I kinda just did what they asked and like I had these other ideas I wanted to explore and I would have rather been writing about this than about that or you know, like perfect in the objective sense in the gym sense in the um strictly like numerical sense is just meeting expectations right yeah but yeah perfectionism is about it feeling perfect to you it's about getting the sense that yes i did it and it's everything i could have dreamed of and that's usually like you know take whatever the technical perfection is multiplied by like 5,000 because it's impossible and you're not going to reach it. And if you do, you probably burnt yourself out trying to get there. Um, So I think that it's sort of an example that it's good enough as the enemy of humanity. Yeah, it's corny and it's over the top and you kind of are like rolling your eyes. But that's how it feels if you're a perfectionist. You're like, if I don't do, if I just do what's good enough, then like, what's the point? anyone could have done that or like it's I don't know it's definitely perfectionism is definitely self-centered in some ways it's a narcissistic trait yeah it's similar to self-loathing as a narcissistic trait yeah right you're so self-obsessed that you can't help but feel like you are not what you could be right yeah um yeah that's a that's a really good answer um and I I think that is a I think that's something that I like. I really want to take away from this movie um, more so than, than anything else is this idea of toxic per, per, like perfectionism because it's something that I've struggled with a lot trying to make something uh, not, like trying not trying to do something that's really really good and trying to make it as good as I can and getting caught up so caught up in those tiny details that I end up not finishing or quitting because I'm just so like overwhelmed with it or so you know just feeling so like uh uh, what's the word just totally uh, like it's impossible right like your creation is consuming you like you can't you can't feed it enough you can't get there you can't so again that's that's why i feel like you know surface level uh, again sounds very pretentious to be like well you know if you look at it surface level it's about the phone but really it's about (laughs) the creator or whatever but like you know, I do think that there's definitely layers to it. But at the same time, you know, it is it's a narrative that ostensibly to certain degrees did happen. It's about an actual company that did fail. Um, and so it's a good way to sort of Trojan horse this discussion of perfectionism and the duality of creativity versus productivity 
Um, yes. And, you know, what happens when you're at either extreme. Um, and, like, you know, um, uh, something I f- I'm fond of saying, but, like, perpetual motion or, like, infinite energy doesn't exist in physics, but it does exist in the human mind. And yeah. if you start making something, right, and you make something that is good, not perfect, it fuels the ability for you to make something better in the future, which is exactly what happens to BlackBerry. As soon as Mike makes that phone, like puts out that he's made this innovation, right? Suddenly it's like, you know, it's to the moon, right? They, they rocket ship to becoming a profitable, well-known, well-respected company. And it allows them to make further innovations and to break the system over and over again to, to make it um, even better and more profitable for them. So they're able to make it to the next stage, right? Unfortunately, they end up fizzling out, right? They don't end up making it all the way. Uh, or continuing into the you know, perpetually, but they this first step of like let's make something that's good is uh, what fuels them to making something better in the future, which is I think the way that we should be thinking about uh, this kind of problem. But no, yeah. I think you summed this up really well. Be that it, it is an irrational um, uh, side of the brain. Yeah, and I, I would say that my sort of big takeaway from this is in a sense that like you know if you put doug at the head of the company and had him run everything it would fall apart if you put jim at the head of the company and made him run everything it would fall apart it's mike and it still falls apart in the end but you you get the idea it fell apart later than it would have um so it's yeah that sort of sense of it's not no sort of creation no sort of production or anything like this is infinitely sustainable as you said but when you have a balance or maybe not even like a one-to-one balance maybe it's two to one or one to two or whatever the ratio is if you have a balance that sort of brings things to an equilibrium where you can keep both the creativity and the emotion and the passion with the realism and the objectivity and the how do we actually do this if you bring those together into a sort of mic type not Mike's actual mindset. A Mike-shaped um, yeah, solution. Yeah. yeah, then that will get you further than you would have gotten if you were just sitting in this, like, random strip mall office playing, like, Command and Conquer for, or, like, 12 uh, hours Or correcting straight. people that are wrong on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, it's I, I'm thinking of this movie sort of like a... It's like a, a variable resistor with a, with a slider, right? You start on one end... And you just slowly move it across the course of the movie to the other end. And the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle. Uh, but you can see... Uh, the sweet I, spot I'm... is when the stroke starts playing and you get that right. montage. That is that is the sweet <laughs> spot. Which, I mean... <laughs> when you tune the radio yeah. just right. <laughs> when you tune the radio perfectly and you hear that one specific song and you're like, okay, we're good. And then before that and after that, things are kind of shaky. <laughs> Okay. Um, one other thing I want to touch on before we move on is uh, Jim's mask collection. This is the thing I noticed, and I was like, "That means something," but I did yeah. not really get what I was trying to say. So, yeah. what do you what do you have to say about the about so, Jim's mask collection? Yeah, I I was sort of on the same page for my first watch. I was like, "Why is he working in like a museum exhibition? What is why is that his <laughs> decoration?" And I think, and I want to preface this by saying that I am like extremely white you if i can 
go out on a limb ahead, and out you to <laughs> out the viewers. Me. You are also extremely white. So this is something that I am going to look at and say, this feels like it's talking about this. And then I'm going to let it go for whoever else out there wants to talk about it and has more perspective. Um, and also, I mean, worth noting that as far as I know, Matt Johnson also you know, we're three for three and extremely white people on this topic. So I, I don't know a hundred percent, like, you know, if he consulted with people or if I'm reading into something that's nothing, um, which is, I mean, when I talk about Matt Johnson movies, I feel like the people in that, what's the shining documentary, the room 237, where yes. they're like, yeah, I feel like those people when I talk about his work, because there, there is some stuff that I'm like, yeah, this makes sense. And there's other stuff that I'm like, does it really matter that this character wore this shirt and then later another character wore the same shirt? Like, does that really mean something? Or so, you know, <laughs> or is that I mean? just a wardrobe? Is, is that just that, like, that's what they happen to have? They needed to have a change of clothes because of something, whatever. Um, and that's not even hypothetical. I have written, I have talked for friend with friends for <laughs> hours about one specific Toronto Blue Jays t-shirt in the dirties. And, you know, so again, this might be nothing, but I felt that, it was interesting to have these um, these masks, which, I mean, I can't completely place. There was one that looked like it may be of um, Japanese origin. Um, I don't want to even guess on the other ones and be you wrong. You don't really get a good but, look at all of them. You, get, yeah, like, you can see maybe two or three of them at a time. Yeah, They're to, like on the end, back wall. Yeah, yeah. Towards the end, uh, which I think is sort of a bit of a a bit of a Rosetta Stone for maybe the meaning of the masks in the movie. You see like flashes of them towards the end when it's like approaching like um, the sort of climactic confrontation with the SEC. Like they are featured yeah. sort of towards that back half. Um, I felt just like, you know, off the top of my head that the idea of Jim being in this office and having all of these ostensibly indigenous or not of his culture things as decoration in like a collection in his office. And then when he leaves to work at RIM, he picks them all up in a box and he moves them with him. It felt almost sort of like colonial, sort of like, you know, taking things that other people have created that he wasn't involved in, that he doesn't know the exact context of, that he, you know... Sure. doesn't have a personal connection to but and treating why, them as decoration why masks specifically you know like doesn't the masks normally in signal some sort of like duality or like uh you're hiding your true self right the stranger yeah. i mean i thing. guess we did spend a lot of time just now talking about duality but it was more in regards to jim versus doug and then mike in the middle so yeah. I don't know what it says specifically that Jim is the one with the collection, with the one in his office, but it did jump out to me that, you know, again, this is extremely surface level, but Jim sort of having this colonizer iconography of collecting these items from people, and then in a sense coming in and like reshaping Rim in his image and being like, okay, your desk is here now, right. throw those modems out. I'm going to have my desk here, call this person for me. It kind of, I felt like there was some, at least on like a very subliminal, like emotional level, there was a bit of like, yeah, this is the kind of guy who comes in and takes what he wants and sort of puts it up as if it's his own. I mean, that makes sense with the, in context to the uh, hockey teams too, right? Where yes, exactly. Where he's trying to steal the hockey team away from Pittsburgh and move it to um, Hamilton, uh, I think, Ontario. Yeah. Um, so that's... Um, 
that that makes sense. Uh, I think that's a astute observation there. Yeah, and I, I again would love, love, love to, because again, like you know, the the fans of Matt Johnson that I've talked to, not super diverse. So I would love to see people <laughs> who have more connection to this, sort of have discussions about this. And I am hopeful that as this movie is like somewhat mainstream, maybe more people will be coming to his work that haven't before. Um, and they may have something more substantial to say on that. I would love to hear perspectives yeah, yeah. from people who actually have, um, you know, a horse in this race. Um, we've talked a little bit about the soundtrack for this movie. Um, it definitely has a lot of great songs, real, real bangers out there. So what are some of your favorites um, and what are notable about them? So for me, um, I guess I'll start with my second place that Waterloo Sunset is like the perfect ending credits. It's like that perfect, you know, sort of when I talked about the um, biopic slides at the end feeling kind of camp and cheesy, that song really contributes to it. It kind of like pulls you out and makes it sort of, I don't know, it makes it kind of more fun and goofy. Um, but I mean, also, though, if you look at the lyrics, it's largely about, you know, like, corporatization and like you know pe watching people going to and from work and i don't know there, there's definitely something there that feels thematically appropriate um hmm. but to me i think someday by the strokes is like the standout in terms of sonically i mean i was born in 2001 so like i it's not like this is a song that like reminds me of my college years or whatever but like <laughs> that's that kind of song that you listen to and no matter when you were born it feels nostalgic there's just something about the chord progression and the way it's put out there there's a reason it's a it's a hit is because it's so it just evokes nostalgia perfectly so i think putting it in the point of the movie that it does where things are pretty much perfect where it's like the rose-colored glasses look of if you were to look back on Rim and be like, yeah, back in the good old days, this is how it was and everything was great. I think that choosing that um, song for that montage was pretty standout. And then I also, um, I have the lyrics here. Um, I mean, it's pretty on the nose, but in many ways, they'll miss the good old days someday, someday. Yeah, it hurts mm. to say, but I want you to stay sometimes sometimes when we was young oh man did we have fun always always promises they break before they're made sometimes sometimes wow. let's promise never to lie to each other <laughs> doug's still part of the company etc yeah, etc yeah. um i mean then the chorus um i mean just to excerpt part of it you say you want to stand by my side your head's not right i see alone we stand together we fall apart when I take on too many influences when we're working together, but promises were broken and we're not like the company was running sort of before he brought these external forces in. Right. Sure. It wasn't perfect. And there was a deal that they were banking on that secretly wasn't actually happening. But like, in a sense, it feels sort of more, it feels like, you know, and it's framed as if it's written as if Jim coming in is a catalyst for a lot of things to start changing. And so I think that using that song that's about how, you know, it was great in the good old days and we used to work together and we loved each other and we worked together and, you know, whatever. But then having this element of that was in the past and now we're looking back on it. Just the fact that it's a very nostalgic song, it's um, 
yeah, I don't really know how else to put it. I just felt that that was a really standout song in the sense that, yeah, yeah, like sonically it fit really well. And then, you know, afterwards looking at the lyrics, it's like, oh, yeah, that actually really fits and sort of resonates a lot with the narrative. That's cool. I, I, I really didn't see that or pick up on that, but it's it's interesting seeing the lyrics tied directly into the story. That's something that I feel like can be pretty annoying sometimes, but it, this was subtle. I really didn't pick up on it. And the song itself, like, you know, fit with it. I think you're right. The nostalgia factor of it uh, made you feel like you were looking back in time, even if um, the, the song itself was something that was new to you. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I think also, again, like coming in, as a Matt Johnson, a certified Matt Johnson enjoyer. Um, yes. I mean, one of the reasons that I love The Dirties so deeply as a movie is that it does have these montages where the lyrics are so incredibly on the nose and yet they still don't, I don't know, to me and to people that I've watched it with, it doesn't bring you out of it. I think that it's yeah. a very, very signature thing um, for his style. It's hard to do because yeah. so many times you'll hear a song and you're like, this is... So on the nose, you know, like yeah. <laughs> what is going like, I, I, I can't stand it. Uh, it, it really like grates against me. So, yeah, um, I think I think that's a, 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 you know, a feather in his cap there for yeah. sure. Um, I also it's not exactly I guess it's technically the soundtrack, but I am on the edge of my seat. I literally even tweeted last night like we need to get on this. When is the score? The, the, the soundtrack, like the score, going to end up, I mean, I need a vinyl release. I need, at least on Spotify, I will take like a SoundCloud recording off of a microwave playing it. Like I, <laughs> Jay McCarroll's work as um, composer for pretty much everything that Matt has done is always very sort of understated, but comes through really, really impactfully when it needs to. Um, yeah. And what I will say about his um, co compositions for this is one usage of the dial-up beeps and tech noises, whatever you want to call the sort of beeps and bloops during some more tense scenes. Really, really interesting and compelling choice to me. I was a big fan of that. There are several scenes where, you know, there will be a moment of silence and you kind of hear, hear like fax machine noises in the background or something. And it's like, that that's part of the soundtrack. It's like, woven into it um and yeah. then secondly um yeah i guess just i i i think the elephant in the room when you talk about this movie at least when it was first announced people were like oh so it's like they're doing the social network again like it's a tech startup like it's not exactly the same this is hardware versus software but you know it's i saw a lot of people drawing that similarity i even joked about it and i jokingly said to one of my friends like, you know, if if this movie gets a wide release and gets acclaim, we're going to have to deal with seeing Jay McCarroll's name in the same sentence as Trent Reznor. And I don't know how my brain's going to comprehend that. And then literally when the first few screenings happened, admittedly, it was a Matt Johnson fan account, so it wasn't objective. But someone was like, yeah, the soundtrack was very, reminded me very much of Trent Reznor's work on the social network. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening. So <laughs> I guess that that's my, um, oh, and then the additional thing that is means absolutely nothing but was a fun thing to me is that that comparison happens. And then it's announced that, that there is a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie coming out. That's right. With the soundtrack by Atticus Finch and Trent Reznor. 
And so wow. my my head, I was like the you know. Um, Charlie, it's always sunny, like pointing at the walls, Pepe Sylvia scene. I was like, so Jamie Carroll does a soundtrack and they compare it to the social network. And then the guys from the social network are doing a movie about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And Doug loves Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and has a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle wallet. And what does this mean? And so um, it means it means nothing. It means that I'm too online and probably a little delusional. But like, you know, it was just fun things that get picked up for me that i was like that's a that's nice so little funny. coincidence um well speaking of other movies um this movie is coming out at the same time as air uh which is about uh, michael jordan's shoes and tetris which is about the video game um both movies uh, that are like about products that have big cultural footprints i think blackberry certainly the, the blackberry the device certainly has a big cultural footprint um is so this movie is it about a product or is it about something else? I know we've talked about how it's really about the people that are making it, but uh, how do you feel about this movie coming out at the same time as these other product named movies? Um, it's very funny to me, but also at the same time, it kind of makes me irrationally frustrated with some of the discussion I've seen because I saw there was a viral post the other day that was going around that I saw that it was, you know, like the... It was just some tweet that had like four movie posters and it was like Air, Tetris, something else that I can't remember and Blackberry. And it was this sort of generic like, you know, why are all the movies about like products, like whatever. And normally I agree with that sentiment. I'm very much like, I mean, even I saw um, the new Spider-Verse movie the other day and it was great yeah. and I have very few complaints, but there was a nagging part in the back of my head the whole time that was like, this is kind of like just marketing, right? Like there's there at a certain level when you get so immersed in IP and everything is it, it's, you can be very cynical and almost dystopian about it, that it's all sure. just a big capitalistic Ouroboros feeding into itself, like, you know, whatever. So on one hand, I, I agree with that post, but on the other hand, I'm like, just give it a chance. Just watch the movie because it's not <laughs> what it says it is at all. <laughs> like it is, but like, I don't know. It's, and I mean, that's very unfair. I'm sure that Air and Tetris and whatever that other movie that was brought into this that I can't remember was, I'm sure they have narratives that aren't just buy the product. This is how we made the product. I'm sure they're deeper than that because that's, that's the whole way that a movie gets made, right? Um, that there's a story that's being told. Um, but there is a sort of selfish part of me that's like, I think this is a great choice to do this movie um, as his first movie with like actual well-known actors um, as like a first step into the mainstream. But at the same time, he's almost sort of undercutting himself. He's almost sort of, um, I don't know, it, it kind of, it, I feel like there's a bit of, some people are going to bounce off of it or not give it a chance purely because of that. And I can't even say that I blame them. It's just frustrating that that's the stage that we're at um, with film and with just like everything being a commodity, everything being corporate, everything being a product. I don't really, I don't know if I agree because I, I think that as much as like, you know, capitalism is a destructive you know, negative force in everyone's lives and how much uh, this country, you know, worships the uh, free market above even other people's lives. It's, um, 
I think that telling stories about like products isn't necessarily the um, wrong way to go, right? I don't know if it's necessarily a celebration of those products or something, but it's a, um, these are parts of our reality, right? I mean, you can't help but feel as an American that self-expression is tied directly to consumption, right? You, you buy things to, to signify that you're part of a group or that you are a certain type of person. Um, and there's not really a way to separate that, right? It's sort of a part of our lives. And this, um, these things, right, that are, you know, in, in some ways just products, um, certainly have a very uh, American story to tell, which is like this pursuit of a dream, a pursuit of a goal, the pursuit of making it big in the land of opportunity, quote unquote, right? So I think that these are like, in, in some ways, like the most uh, relevant stories for a lot of people because they are telling stories about people's lives and about the American dream in a very real way. Um, I haven't actually seen any of these. I've seen Ford versus Ferrari, uh, which came out a few years ago. I love that movie. I thought that movie was amazing. And it really is a story about perseverance and about like American ingenuity. And um, even though it's really about the Ford, you know, that product, and maybe you're selling more Fords because of it, it's certainly uh, kind of lending itself to a wider conversation that I think is um, uh, still relevant. Because as much as we want to pretend that capitalism doesn't play a role in our, our lives, it certainly does. And I don't necessarily think that this is contributing to that as much as this simply reflecting stories that people kind of want to be told. Um, I was listening to this podcast a long time ago called Business Wars. They talked about all these different, uh, you know, interactions between different businesses and all the different uh, decisions that they make to outwit each other or to make it ahead in the market. Fascinating stuff. And I think it's, an, it's it, there's lessons in there to learn. It's not just about, oh, capitalism is the greatest force of all time. I think it's talking about how to innovate and how to be the next big thing and, you know, how to... Um, uh, give people what they want. I mean, that's the thing about uh, like the next stage of our uh, evolution as a species is that we need new technology to solve some of the problems that we have today. And um, I think celebrating that is something that's important. Yeah, I agree with all of that. My only um, amendment or contribution is every time that you mentioned the American dream, just put a like plus Canadian in there. Cause. Right, that's right. Sorry, this is a Canadian movie. <laughs> yeah. Forgot about yeah. that. Uh, yeah. uh, um, I should, I should uh, make sure I respect the, the Canadians. Yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not this. sure watching this movie how you could possibly forget that it's Canadian when you're I, in the moment. You're right. It is, the, it is probably the most Canadian movie I've ever watched. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back uh, in no time at all. I worked at RIM from 1993 to 2007, so the 1996 time frame that this movie trailer is supposed to be for is right about the time that I worked at RIM. Now the characters are a bit hard to recognize, uh, it took me a while, but this guy is supposed to be Mike Lazaridis. This guy is supposed to be Jim Balsley. I know people often call him Jim Balsilly, sounds much more dignified, but uh, back then everybody just called him Jim Balsley. And <laughs> Being quite the shark and all that, I think Balsley was uh, quite appropriate. But uh, this guy is 
much more portrayed the shark than he really was. Free wireless signal all across North America. Well, what he's referring to is the Mobitex network, which existed at the time and it was deployed over much of North America. But it was neither free nor internet. So this guy, I first thought this guy was just a fictional character, but uh, later in the trailer he's referred to as Doug, so I guess he's supposed to be Doug Freakin. This guy, both in appearance and speech and temperament, there's no resemblance to the actual Doug Freakin. So uh, I don't know, this guy's, as far as I'm concerned, a fictional character. We're back. Uh, welcome back to Affable Chat. I'm here with B. Um, probably the only person in her theater to go see the uh, Blackberry who wasn't interested in Glenn Howerton and the uh, Always Sunny. Uh, but regardless, we're going to go into our cool Easter egg section. Uh, B has several. So B, why don't you uh, hit us with this first one here? All right. So um, one of the things that kind of perked my ears up um, so obviously I'm a fan of this director and as soon as I found out that he had a new film in production, my friends and I were refreshing the IMDb page like every day looking for new cast <laughs> updates. And That's awesome. we were convinced that Carrie Elwes was like a troll ad, like there was no way he got Carrie really? Elwes. And then Glenn Howerton's there, what? Absolutely not. Because again, coming from the stuff that he does, like no Carrie chance. Elvis is not that big of an actor. I mean, he was in Princess Bride, but he's not been in anything else. He's been in Saw? <laughs> Yeah, he's been in Saw. So is so, so many other people. Saw's I don't know. Not a... To me and my friends who all really love the first Saw movie as well as The Princess Bride. We were like, Carrie Ellis in this, that's kind of wild. Um, again, because you have to understand, he does not hire people who are not like directly involved with him and his friends. Sure, sure. Like this is, it, it was kind of insane. And so as like stuff slowly comes out, um, we're kind of, you know, buying into it, letting ourselves dream a little bit. And then the one person who showed up on the list that I was, was both the most likely to be in the movie to me and the absolute no way, how the hell is this happening, was a name, Sungwon Cho, who is better known as ProZD online. Um, as a terminally online person... I am a huge fan of his work. He does a lot of, um, I think he's moved to doing some like professional voice acting stuff. So this wasn't his oh, he first. He has a like, lot of voice acting. Yeah. He's a, yeah. he's like, yeah, he does a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So he's not like as like, you know, niche or whatever as he probably feels to me because I have been following him initially on Tumblr, moving to like YouTube and Twitter as he sort of expanded since he was the guy that would find a funny post on Tumblr and read it in a silly voice. And then everyone was like, hey, we should get ProZD to voice this comic or this post or whatever. Like, I, I mean, I don't know. He feels like, you know, a content creator, like someone that is very much yeah, he's involved. Got, he's got 4 million um, subscribers on YouTube. Yeah. Um, he's, yeah, he... I can't remember what he probably was famous for. He was on Vine for a while. He did yeah. these like a villain um, things or like yeah, he RPG. He still does that. He still does um, that stuff. on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, my favorite things he does are the card game ones that he's like when you're playing when you have a great uh, turn in a card game and he like yeah. makes up this he made up this card game that's like all cheese and like cow themed. Really, really funny. Yeah, I think um, my my personal favorite one that he's done, um, which is somewhat niche, is um, a dub of a single panel comic, which is. Um, Goofy 
the Mickey Mouse character sitting next to the character Homura Akemi from Madoka Magica. And he says, gosh, Homura, if you really love her that much, it'll all work out. Which, if you've... <laughs> anyone who's watched Madoka Magica, I think that that's like a classic online post in the culture for that. Um, so he's... I don't know, his stuff really resonates with me in the sense that I mean, he's been around forever. So seeing that name on the IMDb list before there was much press about it, it was very surreal to see him be involved. And I'm just very happy that not only was he involved, because I wasn't sure there was a part of me, because I knew that he did voice acting stuff. There was a part of me that was thinking, maybe he'll have like a voice acting role. Yeah, maybe he'll, he'll be the voice of the Blackberry. Yeah, like he'll do like, like a... The Blackberry will start talking to, uh, <laughs> to Mike. Like, yeah. make me Mike. <laughs> I don't know. I thought maybe like he'd do like a commercial voice or something or like be like a radio announcer. Like, I don't know. I was expecting like yeah. a voice performance. So then when the first poster for Blackberry came out and his face is on it in the background, I was like, oh, he's like an actual character. Um, and then in my opinion definitely not biased at all he has like the most pivotal role in the movie like the plot could not have happened without him in the sense that he is the one that says at naughty dog we reprogrammed the playstation to make crash bandicoot run so why can't we reprogram the cell towers like him saying that is the reason that they're able to go into reprogramming the cell towers and sell all those extra phones and blah, blah 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 so in my opinion it was very very sweet that a a person who, much like Matt Johnson, got their start and even more so than Matt, like continues to be part of online culture and sketch comedy and, um, you know, just sort of online internet humor and content p- production. The fact that he got not only a role in the movie, but a speaking role and a role that is like, you know, very, very core to the narrative. He's also the reason that... Um, the Charles Purdy shows up. He is from the same job that Charles that's Purdy right, is at. That's right. So he is not Canadian, though. That's true. That's true. But I think that if if most of the other characters are Canadian, um, and that's a part of Matt, then the part of Matt that is represented here is the he is he was born in Minnesota and uh, he he lived in Michigan, so that's sort of Canada. Yeah, it's like almost really Canada. Canada. And it's not like Carrie Elwes is Canadian either. <laughs> All right. Okay. So that was my main Easter egg was that I'm just very happy that he's there. Um, do you have any other ones? The infamous line that I saw people posting about right away um, where Jim sort of loses it in the meeting with the um, NHL board members. And he says, I'm from Waterloo where the vampires hang out. Um, that was kind of a non sequitur to me. Um, it was a non sequitur to a lot of people. Apparently, um, it is actually like deeply ingrained in Canadian online meme culture. There was a video that went viral a while ago of, I, ostensibly, it's just like a probably very mentally unwell guy shouting some odd things on the sidewalk. But whether it's ethical or not, it became sort of widely known, apparently. And one of the things that this guy yelled in this video that went viral was, I'm from Waterloo where the vampires hang out. So... Okay, it's, it's, I'm going um, to play this yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> right here. You see, when you go like that, right, you have a cross, two sticks, right? And that's how I felt when I was in Waterloo. Because when I walked in Waterloo and smiled at people, they treated me like a vampire. They used the cross and they went like this 
by not smiling at me. In Toronto, hey, hi guys, you know me, Steve Spiros, easygoing. Those who know me, I'm a nobody. You understand, and you can't kill a person with no body. So why am I afraid? I'm not afraid. I'm afraid of the boogeyman. Who's the boogeyman? You figure it out. I'm getting out of here. I'm going back to Waterloo where the vampires hang out. And I'm going to wear my sunglasses that night. You know why? Because women show their tits, have short skirts, and then they feel violated when I look at them. Why? Because I have sunglasses on and I'm weird. I can't kill a person with no body. So why yeah. am I afraid? I'm not afraid. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very... It, it's um yeah it's sort of the, th the sort of thing where i guess if you're canadian like i do have some canadian friends who recognize it more quickly than i see, I, I, see. I, had, I had to see it from um an interview that he did where he mentioned that but um so it's anachronistic for um jim to be quoting it back at that time i think he in the universe of blackberry just came up with it himself um but you know in the production sense um it definitely is a homage to a canadian film classic you could say i see yeah. <laughs> one of the great traditions of canadian film yeah um, okay so yeah um or do you have anything else be sorry um i guess just the last thing is that um you know the the production team that was on board for the movie um largely largely people that matt has worked with before matthew miller and matt johnson did the screenplay so um you know, Matt Johnson, obviously, writer, director, star, visionary, um, auteur, some may say. Um, Matt, Matt Miller is um, a writer who's done stuff with him for his previous work. Um, let's see. Jay McCarroll as exec executive producer and also doing score, um, obviously. Jared Robb, um, or I believe it's Rob, um, is the associate producer. I believe he's also, yeah, he's cinematographer. Um, he is ingrained in the Matt Johnson universe to the extent that he um, is the cameraman and plays the cameraman in the two previous movies. And also, um, well, Operation Avalanche had multiple cameramen, but um, The Dirties, he is the cameraman who may or may not exist. It's kind of a whole thing. Um, and he is addressed by name, I believe, at least once. And in discussion of the film, my friends and I have like described certain like cinematography styles as like a Jared shot or like a um, <laughs> like so there there's like certain things that like you know he does that were still in this movie. There's a moment where right at the beginning where um, Jim is pulling into the parking lot with his car and he turns around and he kind of looks directly at the camera as like sort of startled like as if he's seeing that someone's filming him um you know diegetically he's not he just saw that the swedish or whatever dutch businessmen just pulled up um yeah but there's a split second where watching it the first time he looked at the camera and i was like oh my god they're doing it again the caravan's a character jared's back <laughs> so it's just like stuff like that um i'm sure there are more people that are slipping my mind right now but um yeah in terms of um, you know, the core team, I mean, that's like, you know, producer, writer, um, cinematographer, director, actor, um, soundtrack, like all kinds of stuff um, is sort of a core team um, that he has worked with for years. And so that was really nice for me to see that um, 
you know, again, stylistically sort of bridging the gap between his other sort of more, um, more niche work with a more large screen production style. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what really happened to BlackBerry. This was just a skim through the Wikipedia article to talk about uh, research in motion um, and what they were, um, uh, basically what, what happened with them. So uh, RIM was, was a successful company from 1984 through the introduction of the first BlackBerry. Um, they made all sorts of network-enabled devices like pagers, modems, and point-of-sale solutions. So the kind of rickety structure that you see at the beginning of the movie is largely fictional um, and because this was a established company and they made plenty of products. Um, after the iPhone came out, BlackBerry still retained a significant number of users in the U.S., peaking in 2010 with about 21 million. And actually, Blackberries were really popular um, outside of the U.S. In 2012, they had 79 million users, but only 9 million in the U.S. So that was what, uh, my math is wrong, uh, like five years after the iPhone comes out, um, the BlackBerry is still very popular uh, throughout the world. But the iPhone really was the thing that fired the killing shot. Uh, between 2010 and 2013, BlackBerry's stock fell 87%, which is pretty, pretty uh, dramatic. Um, both CEOs quit in 2012, and this was the first time the company reported a net loss in several years. Uh, so when Jim and Mike both quit in 2012, um, that's when the company actually started to like fall off the off the rails and blackberry the company is still around but they uh, and they actually still make phones um people just don't buy them <laughs> they think that there was an article i read from 2019 i think where they had a new blackberry it looks very similar to all the other smartphones out there but i think um, some of them actually still have keyboards i, I will uh, jump right in now, there oh go ahead. if i can jump in and say i did see um recently i think it was as recent as like December 2020 or something they did shut down like the Blackberry texting service like if you have a oh, Blackberry wow. you can't use the you know the free unlimited texting on Blackberry encrypted whatever so I'm pretty sure that at this stage they um they're not completely shuttered but they do um th they have closed down a lot of services yeah well they don't really make phones anymore right I, I mean they do but not but nobody yeah. buys them um they do have other services though they have software and they provide like specific services that you can that you can uh, purchase. Um, so they uh, the company is still around. Obviously, it doesn't have the same purchase as it used to, but I think it's uh, uh, for whatever reason still sticking around and still somewhat successful. Um, so Jim Balsillie actually did do the stock thing that was described in this movie, where he promised people um, stocks and then backdated the uh, date that the stock was given so that they would be um, you know rich. Uh, later on, basically, if they sold out immediately. Um, but he and Mike both weathered this problem together. It wasn't just him that like um, had to deal with this. And they ended up paying the penalties together with the help of their COO, uh, Dennis Cavillman. Um, they ended up paying about $68 million uh, US and $9 million Canadian. Um, so this was something that they, uh, they dealt with together. It wasn't just Jim's problem. Um, and also... Uh, Jim did actually try to buy the Pittsburgh Penguins and move them to Hamilton, Ontario. Um, and he, but that wasn't the only team he tried to buy. He also tried to buy the Nashville Predators and the Phoenix Coyotes, but all of these deals fell through. The Nashville Predators, he actually lied to the guy and told him that he wasn't going to move the, um, uh, move the team. But then he also reactivated his contract with the Hamilton, Ontario, um, stadium so that he could, uh, 
move them there um, in secret, essentially. But they end up finding out and, and stopping it. And then the Phoenix Coyotes actually went bankrupt, which is why he tried to purchase them and move them. Um, but it ended up not working out um, there either. Um, one other thing I want to talk about is uh, in this Defector article for that, where they interviewed Matt Johnson, they mentioned this program that he... Um, like was a big part of i'm not did he start it or was he just like uh kind of energized it yes um he helped the canadian government's film funding body telefilm launch a diversity program called talent to watch that is okay um as per the defector.com interview blackberry director matt johnson is not wearing an outfit which is about his <laughs> yes um it's a great article his interesting um red carpet choices for the premiere of the movie um it was yeah it is it, it's a great article and i think it gives some insight about why he made this movie and and what it meant to him um and yeah as as someone who's very passionate about the creative process uh matt johnson is like uh kind of pioneering or or really uh, emphasizing this program called Talent to Watch, where he's uh, uh, encouraging young Canadian filmmakers to make more films um, and kind of break into that market. So it's sort of a, it's sort of like a entrepreneur or like venture capitalist type uh, setup where like you submit for funding and then he and um, the other, like the rest of the Canadian government will give you like a grant to make a movie basically. So it's a, it's a neat program. I think that. Um, it's it's really cool that he's doing this. I think it's all. I hope it has a big impact um, in the way that he's that he's uh, envisioning it. I think also it's important to note that um, again I, I need to do more reading about the program itself because I do find it quite interesting. Um, it's it's labeled in the Defector article as a diversity program. So I think yes. that that again sort of ties back to what I was saying earlier about how his work has largely um, I think it's mostly been sort of like white nerdy people have gravitated towards it but he is aware of that <clears throat> and he seems to be actually sort of actively pushing to take this program and open it up to new voices so that um, there's more diversity in it's not just a Canadian thing but you know um, again I need to do more reading into it but my understanding is that it's um, advocating for more you know like yeah, diverse um, filmmakers and diverse stories to be told, um, which I find very, very exciting and interesting. And it's always nice to hear that people that you're a fan of, um, especially to the degree that I'm a fan of his work, um, do seem to care about um, not being the only voice in the room. Definitely. I, I completely agree. Okay. That brings us to the end of our discussion about BlackBerry. As we do at the end of all of our Affable Chat episodes, we will now deliver our ratings. B, what rating do you give to BlackBerry? Um, I believe I did my math right. Um, I am giving it 11 out of 11 years at the top of the cell phone market. Excellent. Love it. Um, I give this movie uh, a 0% market share in the phone market but 98% market share of good reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, which is where it sits currently, um, which, which is pretty I am, crazy. I am so psyched about. <laughs> <laughs> I okay, was not B, involved at all, but I, I feel accomplished somehow. <laughs> um, B, uh, uh, where can people find you on the internet or anywhere else? Uh, please take some time to plug. So um, I'm mostly active on Twitter. Twitter has kind of, you know, been slow motion car crash for a while. So I might end up 
moving somewhere else, but if I do, you'll probably hear about it there. Um, my Twitter is narrow stairs, narrow as in skinny stairs, as in steps, narrow stairs. Um, it's my favorite Death Cab for Cutie album, um, but that is my username, twitter.com slash narrow stairs. And again, um, I do have a Discord server. I'm trying to keep it pretty small, pretty, um, you know, personal, um, be able to interact sort of regularly with everyone. I don't want it to become like a huge thing. But um, if anyone's interested in Matt Johnson's work after this, or you already were a fan, um, feel free to hit me up. I do have a little Discord server where we talk a lot about his work and a lot even about themes that we didn't get into in this episode, especially in regards to his other movies. Yeah, and I'm excited to, to continue this discussion uh, sometime in the future. Uh, be and um, yeah, I'll be I'll be uh, thoroughly reading through that Discord now that I am uh, fully Johnson pilled. Uh, thanks to you. So yeah, I I am not liable for any um, brain damage <laughs> any brain that you damage I see from the the, the kind of nice. stuff that I say on there. <laughs> it's a lot less academic. <laughs> um, next on Apple Chat, uh, I'm not sure what we're doing. <laughs> I'm recording uh, across the Spider Verse episode later today. Uh, so maybe that will come out before this. Maybe that will come out after this. I don't know. Um, anyway, something will be coming out soon uh, for, for us. Don't you worry. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Affablechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. There you can find the latest from us and all our social accounts, including our Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all of which are at AffableChat. And we even have an email address, which is affablechat at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, then tell a friend about it. Um, all you have to say is, have you considered listening to Affable Chat on your BlackBerry? Um, we probably are on there. And if we're not, uh, if you're listening to this on a BlackBerry, please tell us. And uh, we'll make sure that it's easier for you in the future. Um, that's it for now. B, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this movie with me. And um, you know, giving me the, the, the detail and the insight that you have uh, crafted. Uh, for this movie and thank you so much for um giving me this opportunity as you can tell i um have been sort of bursting at the seams for like half a decade now to talk about this guy's work so (laughs) um i am happy to discuss this with anyone and everyone who shows the slightest interest thank you for having me yeah i'm happy to fan those flames so um all right thank you for listening